Hi, and welcome to Brett. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he sets out five vocational gifts for the building up of the church in the kingdom of God. Evangelist, pastor, prophet, teacher, and apostle. It's our conviction that every single one of us is called into one or more of these. They're not personalities, but our personality undoubtedly plays a part. What they are is the call of God on your life. Now Jesus is, of course, the perfect combination of all five. And so it makes sense that having worked out our particular call, we look to and learn from Jesus in order to grow into maturity in our particular one. So for the next five weeks, we'll be looking at how Jesus is an example to us of the perfect evangelist, apostle, teacher, pastor, and prophet. Lord, we thank you so much for your presence with us. We thank you that you're here right now. We thank you that you know who we are. You know what we're like, and we ask that you would continue to speak to us and be with us as we explore your uh, word and we pray for one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you like to take a seat? Very warm welcome to you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ed, uh, and along with my wife Hannah, we lead this church. Um, You can talk to her afterwards, if you like, about all the things that are wrong with it. Uh, But otherwise, uh, it's very nice to see you. Um, Obviously, as you will know, uh, next week is not just the Super Bowl, and it's not just Innes coming to speak to us, it's also my birthday. Uh, Yep. Uh, I like European red wine. I'm just going to put that out there. I've tried, I've tried Californian wine. I've tried for six years Californian wine. It's just disgusting. Uh, I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, that's that. Uh, we are concluding our series on um, calling. In Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians, he sets out, as you will know by now, five vocational gifts for the building up of the church and the furthering of God's kingdom. And we've covered four, uh, the evangelist, the apostle, the pastor, and the teacher. Uh, This morning, we're looking at the fifth and final, the prophet. Uh, As we've said before, it's our conviction, and it's really sort of the the vision of the church, is that actually all of us are called into um, probably one, maybe uh, more than one of these callings. There are other gifts that um, Paul talks about in the New Testament, things like admin, exciting. Uh, It is, if you like it. Um, And uh, uh, hospitality, these sorts of things. But in general, I think these five are sort of primary. And it's my conviction that each of us is called into one, and that really the church functions very well when all the prophets are doing their prophesying, prophesying, all the teachers are doing their teaching, all the evangelists are doing their evangelizing, all the apostles are doing their apostleship, and all the pastors are doing the pastoring. And when we're all doing that, then the church really uh, grows. So our hope is that everyone sort of identifies what sort of shape, what sort of gift they are, and then can use it. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute, because I know the application of all these things is uh, just as, if not more important than the teaching. I will come on to that in a bit. Um, So throughout this series, we've been looking at the arch, pastor, prophet, teacher, Apostle, Evangelist, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, him. Uh, And today we're looking at Jesus the prophet as the example to us all of how we can grow up into maturity. So today's reading is of two prophetic instances in the life of Jesus, uh, which actually follow a third one, probably the most dramatic and famous 
in the Gospels, that of Jesus entering into Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, riding on a donkey. Uh, so we'll just hear what happens directly after that. And Jess is somewhere, and she's going to read from uh, Matthew's Gospel. This is Matthew 21. Huge round of applause for Jess, obviously. Hello? I've never heard myself on a microphone before, so this is weird. Um, Okay, so this is Matthew uh, 21. 21? Okay. Um, When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Did you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Early in the morning, Jesus was on his way back to the city. He was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Thank you, Jess. Round of applause. That was excellent. So, are you a prophet? Prophets are like the truth-tellers of the church. They tend to see in sharp detail where the church is going wrong and where the church is going right. They hear the voice of God clearly, and often they care deeply for things like justice and rightness and goodness and truth, and they will fight for it. They have a low tolerance for sin, and when it comes to speaking the truth in love, they will tend to err towards the truth side of things. They can sometimes be a bit direct. They can sometimes be a little bit spiky. Such is their rigidity to God's word, they can often feel misunderstood and disrespected in the church. But they are vital, you are vital to the church. And the rest of the church needs you, and we, the rest of the church, need to do all we can to make you feel loved and appreciated. Actually, probably more than any other gifting, I think. Because prophets can particularly tend towards feeling a little bit like outsiders or they can isolate themselves off. Consider John the Baptist, consider Elijah, two of the foremost prophets of the Bible. They spent the vast majority of their time in the wilderness needing to separate themselves off from the compromise of God's people. This isn't actually a good thing for anyone. So specifically to the prophets, we, the rest of the church, need to regularly tell you how much we love you and we need you. 
We need to say sorry for not listening to you. Often prophets can feel like they have been banging their head against a wall for over and over and over, and then they just give up. We're very sorry for doing that, if that is you. For your part, the prophets, it's good to acknowledge that the problem actually for you is never really hearing God's voice. find that quite easy to understand what God's saying. It's sometimes knowing when and how to deliver it. The mature prophet has worked out that sometimes it's okay to sit on something for a while and you don't actually have to say it, possibly forever. That would be okay. Um, Before we moved to LA in 2016, we'd gone to our church's annual retreat back in London. We weren't in a very good place. We'd taken our kids out of school. We'd rented out our house. I'd left my job, uh, all in anticipation of moving imminently to uh, L.A. to um, plant this church. But unfortunately for us, there had been a massive delay on our visas. And so the worst-case scenario had been that we will definitely, definitely, definitely get our visas in January. Um, But it was already March, and we had not got our visas. And so we were basically stuck in this limbo, moved out of London, no house, no job, no school, three kids under seven. We were at a low ebb, it was fair to say. We thought, actually, have we made a massive mistake? Is God just not in this at all? What have we done? Where are we going to go from here? We were quite broken people going to this church weekend. Uh, We really didn't want to be there. We sort of sat at the back, trying to avoid everyone. And during one session, there was worship, and I was at the back, minding my own business. And then this guy, who I barely knew, wandered up to me during the worship and just whispered into my ear, and he went, God's telling me, it's August. And then he disappeared. And I was like, um, you know, if I'd been mature, I'd have gone, oh, thank you for speaking, God. But instead, I was like, I want to smother your face with a pillow. Uh, That's five more months, five more months. I don't know whether I could handle it. We ended up moving house 27 times in that year. So, prophets, don't cast your pearls before swine. And I know that in this story, I am the swine. That actually, if I'd been mature, I would have gone, thank you very much, but I I couldn't. Um, But I'll own that. So, this morning, what is prophecy? What does it do, and how can we do it? So, what is it? So, the background of this passage is that Jesus has just entered Jerusalem for the first time. This is the beginning of the end of his ministry. Up until now, Jesus has been spending his time in the north of the kingdom, primarily with people out in the countryside. But his face is now set towards Jerusalem, where he will eventually be, of course, arrested, tried, and crucified. Now, the popular picture of Palm Sunday, of um, Jesus entering, is that the whole of Jerusalem gathered around, right? And they all um, had palm um, branches, and everyone welcomed him as the king. Uh, But that's not actually accurate, uh, according to the text. Now, the people who traveled with him down from the north clearly um, adore him. They love him. They've seen his whole ministry, and they are the ones praising him as he enters the city gate. But the rest of the city have actually no real idea who this guy is, and they want to know why he's come here. It's why verse 10 says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The stirred bit actually should be translated shaken or agitated or aggravated. It's not a positive word. Jesus is announcing himself as king, as the long-awaited Messiah, and it's causing consternation amongst the people of the city. Who is this upstart? How dare he 
really, is what's going on. And then he's got all these other people going, hey, no, he is. He's the king. He's the Lord. Up until now, Jesus has kept those who have recognized him from actually uh, speaking out what they've seen, telling them not to tell anyone because his time has not yet come. But now the secret is out. And he's therefore confronted by these priests asking him whether he actually hears what these tiny little children are saying. Do you hear what they're saying? They're calling you the son of David. They're calling you the king. And Jesus, for the first time, really goes, yes, they are, and they're right. Suck it up. Keep it coming. So the focus here really is squarely on the question of Jesus' authority. These openly sort of messianic gestures that he's making have led to an inevitable confrontation between him as the self-proclaimed Galilean king and the Jerusalem authorities whose position he is threatening. What Matthew is doing is confronting us, the reader, with a choice between the old discredited leadership and the new son of man who has come to fulfill the messianic mission. It is therefore no surprise that Jesus heads directly to the temple, the temple whose importance cannot be over-exaggerated. The temple was everything. It was the focus of the nation's religious life, of a symbol of kind of national identity and pride. And Jesus arrives, goes straight to the temple, and says, this is my house now. Very confrontational. I'm taking back my house because that which God entrusted you with, you have ruined. So both his driving out of the money changers and traders as well as the cursing of the fig tree, which we will come on to in a minute, are as much prophetic actions, actually, as prophetic pronouncements. But they are prophecy nonetheless, because they are prophetic since they are announcing what God is saying to the people here and now. And that always is what prophecy is. Jesus is throwing down the gauntlet. You're either with me or you're against me. What's it going to be? You see, prophecy always challenges us to change our beliefs and behaviors in the present. That's what it's there for. It's not so much about telling the future. People can often be a bit confused on this. Primarily, biblical prophecy is forth-telling as opposed to foretelling, saying what God is saying now as opposed to predicting the future. Um, in the example of the whispering man who whispered in my ear, it's August. Really, if I'd been a mature person, this would have really affected me in a positive way in the present. I was spending my whole time earnestly praying, God, please bring the visa now. Bring the visa now every day. Please bring the visa now. And what I could have done was gone, God's told me it's going to be August. I mean, it turns out he was exactly right. It came in August. It's very annoying. Um, could have just been a few days later and then it would have been September and then it would go, ha, you're wrong. But it wasn't, it was August. But actually, it was allowing me to plan. It was allowing me to be at peace. It was allowing me to know that God's got it. It's going to be okay. It was going to affect my present. Now, I see this all as a bit of God's joke because earlier in January, Hannah and I had been at the depths of despair going where is this visa and then I felt like God had said to me it's going to take months and so I woke up in I had this dream and then I woke up straight away and I said to her the first thing I said um, in the morning is God's told me it's going to take months and then she threw some coffee on me or something like that but it's always for the present for our change of behavior here and now 
But having said all that, it doesn't mean that prophecy can't have both future and present elements to it. Both of the services that are offered in the temple, animal sales for sacrifice and money changing, were helpful and actually even necessary for all these pilgrims who would come to Jerusalem for the Passover in order to change their money and get a goat or something to sacrifice. But it is the it's not the existence of the traders inside the temple. Um, it's, sorry, it's the existence of the traders inside the temple that is the real problem for Jesus. Presumably, this is a recent development permitted by the authorities. So ultimately, Jesus' anger is not towards the traders and their customers. It's towards the priestly establishment who have allowed this. It is a symptom of something has really gone wrong here with the Jewish authorities' leadership. It is corrupted. It's broken down. Jesus wasn't really leading a revolt. He was acting alone. Because this is about him and his calling. And here is the past element of prophecy. He was fulfilling the prophecies of old. Ezekiel, the prophet, spoke of a new purified temple, not just purified from Gentile influence, but also purified of the Jewish people's own compromise and idolatry. Zechariah looks forward to the day when, the Lord will no long, when there will no longer be traders in the house of the Lord. And Malachi looked forward to the vision of the Lord suddenly coming to the temple to purify its, worshiping, its worship and offerings. So the past element of prophecy is about reminding the people what they already know. It's telling them what they have heard from God, but they have forgotten. A friend of mine was a new Christian, and uh, he was at Oxford University, and he was going through a bit of a crisis of faith. He wasn't very mature, and he was really wondering, as people can tend to do, does God actually love me? And this was what he was praying. I, don't, I just don't know. if he, I think he probably loves everyone else apart from me. And he was, he was really exercised by it. He was very depressed, and he was thinking, I, I might just have to ditch this whole thing. And so he's praying, God, could you just show me that you actually love me? And then he went along to uh, church, dragged himself to church, and during the church service, there was one of those things where uh, the leader goes, now, if anyone has any words of prophecy, now would be a good time. And everyone's quiet for a bit, and then a few people came up, and an odd man, quite an odd man came up and said, so this is what I feel like God's saying. God wants you to know that he loves you. The kind of thing that we would dismiss out of hand, so general, right? For my friend, it was devastatingly accurate. It was like all his prayers had been answered. It was like suddenly God met him in that moment. And he was like, I'm never going to doubt again. This is incredible. This is extraordinary. Just reminding him of something from the past that we should all know. The power of God. And this is the power of prophecy going back telling us what has already happened, what we may have forgotten. So it has a past element and it can also have a future. Let's think about fig trees. Verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. This story often really upsets people. They get really upset about the tree. And they get really upset about Jesus cursing a tree. What's he doing cursing a tree? That poor tree. Couldn't he do something more important with his time? Why is he cursing the tree? People genuinely upset about the tree. 
So we need to say a couple of things. One, it's a tree. Get over it. If anything, if you're really, like, do trees have feelings? Almost certainly not. But even if they have feelings, it's now in tree heaven, enjoying itself, okay? So don't worry about the tree. It's a tree. Secondly, Jesus goes on to save the whole universe. So he's not being horrible. What have you ever done? Don't be down on Jesus. Jesus curses this tree to make a prophetic point about the future. Ostensibly, as it goes on, it's a sort of device to talk about the power of prayer. He talks about um, uh, how you can move mountains if you have faith when you pray, and similarly, you can curse withered um, fig trees straight away. But ultimately, this is about um, the temple and its future. Figs were frequently referred to throughout the Bible as symbols of the good life, the good life that God wanted for his people. And fruit is often used as a metaphor to describe what God wants from the behavior of his people. So a fruit-laden fig tree would be a sign of God's blessing and goodness. This was as good as it gets. This tree, though, is different. Verse 19, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing except leaves. Nothing but leaves is significant. The meaning in the Greek is actually that the tree was covered in leaves. It had lots and lots of leaves. This is a bit weird because Passover happens at the end of March and at that time of year, uh, trees would only have a few sort of smatterings of leaves, barely any. They wouldn't come into full um, fruit until later in the year. So this particular fig tree is quite abnormal. It's got lots of leaves. Why has it got lots of leaves, thinks Jesus. Look how many leaves it's got. It must have lots of fruit. This is an amazing tree. I'm hungry, and this tree, even in March, is going to have everything. So he goes up to it, lots of leaves, no, no fruit. This is Jesus saying to the religious authorities, saying to the temple, you look great on the outside, but you're fruitless. When we peel back the curtain, we see that there's nothing there. So, says Jesus, your time is up. The temple's time is up. As he goes on to explain, it will be destroyed. Because Jesus is here as its fulfillment, as its replacement, as something so much better. So prophecy is announcing what God is saying to his people. It can have a past, present, and future element. But ultimately, its application is now. And thirdly, it is always biblical. Jesus quotes two Old Testament texts in this episode. Verse 13 is a quote from Isaiah, and verse 16 is a quote from the Psalms. And as we've seen, the whole thing is steeped in biblical imagery and prophecy. Strange way of saying prophecy. Jesus is a man of scripture, let us remember. All prophecy must be in line with God's revelation in scripture. So this is always the benchmark for the prophet. If you think about all those strongly prophetic movements in the modern church, many of which have sort of happened in California for some reason, how have they lost their way and become all culty? They've lost their way and become all culty because they've forgotten scripture. So no, just because you and maybe your other really hot friends think that God is calling you emphatically to a polygamous fire-worshipping cult. He's not. He just isn't. Because Scripture says otherwise. It's why it's so important. Can I say this again if you are strongly of the prophetic bent? 
please can you try and stay within the church? We need you, but also you need it. You need to hear good teaching from good teachers about what Scripture says. But also, you can do it yourself. Don't take other people's word from it. Become completely immersed in Scripture. And actually, if you're not even a prophet, get completely immersed in Scripture. It's the whole point. Discuss it and study it. Do not just Google it. Google is full of crap. There are lots and lots of really bad books about the Bible. Don't read those. Read the good ones. There are a few. If you want recommendations, find them. But we do not have any excuses. I'll help you find them. (laughs) There is no excuse. I'm really sorry, there's no excuse. If you don't understand something, just leave it by the wayside for a bit. There's a great Mark Twain quote. says, It's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me. It's the parts that do. There's more than enough in the Bible that you do understand that should worry you. Stick to that stuff. I don't mean worry in a bad way. I mean worry in a good way. Got it? Good. Can I just say this to us as a church? We need to grow up a bit. We just need to grow up a bit. We need to mature a bit. That's what I feel like God's been saying to us for a while. We've been doing a good job of it. But we're just going to try and mature a bit. Which means just taking all the things seriously that we need to take seriously. Your gifting, your calling, you using it. And understanding what things are good for us and what things are not. God doesn't say do not murder because he wants to ruin our life. He says do not murder because it would be good for all of us not to murder. Right? We all agreed on that? Yes. Less of the murdering. Good. So, finally, what is prophecy? It's emphatic. And this is very important. For the word of God is alive and active, says Paul, sharper than any, um, sorry, not Paul, writer of the Hebrews, probably Paul, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. Notice how unequivocal the words of Jesus are. Now, the words of Jesus can be rejected, obviously. Many people do. Many people do not like them. But they are not in any doubt as to what Jesus is meaning here. So I need to say this. Prophecy is not some sort of puzzle that needs to be solved. God does not speak in riddles so that the really smart ones work it out. God just speaks. Paul is so excited by prophecy in church because he, the arch-evangelist, is aware of what a powerful tool it is for, those, uh, for reaching those who don't yet believe. So when non-believers hear the word of prophecy, they immediately understand them, and then they are confronted with a choice. Do they submit to what God is saying through these words of prophecy, or do they reject him? Paul loves that, as opposed to tongues, which is uh, the outsider can actually wrongly but completely understandably dismiss as gobbledygook, because tongues sounds like gobbledygook. It's not, but it sounds like it. Prophecy is clear and obvious. That's why Paul likes it. So prophecy is clear and obvious. When you prophesy, be clear and obvious. If you don't really know what it means, don't give it. Because how will anyone else know? I'll say it again. Prophecy is not a puzzle to be solved. 
and it also doesn't need to be wrapped up in hours and hours and hours of beautiful prophetic imagery. I mean, that's nice, but really what we want to know is, what's he saying? Get past the unicorns and all the sort of rainbows and, you know, uh, what are they called? Waterfalls, yes, thank you. (laughs) What's he saying? What's he saying? A friend of mine is a very um, difficult man. He's a very difficult man. He's always been quite a difficult man. And uh, he um, was a very new Christian, but he was evangelizing uh, everyone that he could. And uh, he was um, at this conference. No one, it was a big conference from very powerful prophetic people who had come over from America, and he was there. And he was just um, tying his shoe on the way in. No one knew who he was, but the big prophet guy came up to him, put his hand on his shoulder and said, you're like a bee. You sting people. Now you're going to sting them for Jesus. My friend fell over. It completely changed his life. It's emphatic. It's really clear. Um, my mum, hi mum, uh, reminded me a couple of weeks ago of this. When, when I was um, about eight, my family went on a Christian holiday. Uh, it's as bad as it sounds. Uh, and we went on this Christian holiday, and there was, uh, there was this big youth thing. There was thousands and thousands of people there. And um, in this big youth thing, there was this ch- chance for everyone to pray for everyone else. And I was like, well, I'm eight. I don't know what's going on here. I just want to go home. Why can't we just go to the south of France and sit by a pool? I do not know. Uh, I was like that as an eight-year-old. Uh, anyway, I was there, and this guy, this teenager who's leading it, just said, I feel like God's saying that you're an evangelist. I was like, okay, whatever. I went back, I told my mum, she reminded me of this the other day, and uh, I said to her, what is an evangelist? I didn't know. I didn't think about it again at all. Um, Fast forward a couple of decades almost, and I became a Christian. And I finally took up the courage to come to the front of the church for someone to pray for me. The first thing someone said is, God's calling you to be an evangelist, and you've known this since childhood. And I remembered the thing is, it's exactly what I love to do. I'm doing Alpha at the moment. I can't get enough of it. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's the one thing I'm good at. The only thing in the world that I'm good at is doing that. And I love it. And all because two people just prophesied. With no equivocation. Clear and concise. This is what God's saying. So that's what prophecy is to end. What does it do and how can we do more of it? Firstly, it raises faith. When we hear God speaking, we're reminded about the reality of his majesty and his nearness and his power. That was incredibly good worship earlier. Did you notice that Jesus was speaking to you, that there was something more going on than just some singing of the songs? Because we're in the presence of God. That raises our faith. We expect it. The more we expect him to speak, the more we expect him to speak. Something more than just um, worship's going on. We're meeting with the living God. The same is true with prophecy. Notice that the blind and the lame, verse 14, come to Jesus, not the other way around. They've believed. Their faith has risen because of his prophetic announcement. Their faith is increased, and then they are healed. The cursing of the fig tree opens up a whole discussion about the power of prayer and those who have faith, what they can do. Because 
prophecy helps us put up our spiritual antennas and see that there's something more going on than just the material. We are in touch with the God who loves us and who loves to speak. It's what separates God, the God of the Bible, from every other surrounding um, nation's God. He is not mute idol. He is not just sitting there on the mantelpiece doing nothing. The real God, the one true God, speaks. And when he speaks, and when we hear his voice, our faith is raised and we go, this is not just believing the right things and making sure that my whole life is sorted out. This is actually dynamic and real, and it makes it exciting. Church should be the most exciting thing you do every week. You should not have any idea what's going to happen. Wouldn't that be exciting? Because God is speaking. And what we should do is when we come to church, we should be going, I wonder how God could use me. I wonder how God could use me to help other people. Imagine what you could say to someone because God has told you what to say and how that could change their lives. I bet you if we went around the room now and asked people, what someone has prophesied over them and what impact it's had, if they just chose their best one, we would be astounded. We'd be astounded by what people would say of how much of an impact it has had on their lives. It raises faith and it encourages us. Secondly, Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, the one who prophesies speak to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Even those messages which appear a little bit negative on the surface, like killing a fig tree, uh, are actually speaking of something good. In Jesus' rejection of the temple rule, he is at the same time pointing to a whole new rule, his rule, his kingdom, which is here and now on earth, a release from oppression, sight for the blind, healing and deliverance. He is prophesying his kingdom has already come in all its beauty and joy, and if you want it, you can have it with him right now. And finally, it also always points to Jesus. Clearly, Jesus is making all of this about him, as he likes to do here in our passage, because he's God. But the same is true of all prophecy before and all prophecy since. The Old Testament prophets bemoaned the compromise of God's people. They riled against the idolatry and the licentiousness, but all of them in the end looked to the time when God would revisit his people. The Messiah would come and everything would be made new. When the Spirit falls at Pentecost, after Jesus has returned to the Father, Peter's initial sermon is explaining that this is all what happened, uh, all that was prophesied by the prophet Joel, but then he links it intrinsically to Jesus' death and resurrection, because it's always, always about Jesus. So if the prophecy doesn't point to him, it ain't prophecy. Leave it alone. How do we do it? No scripture. God speaks through the Bible. It's there for everyone to read. So if we want to better understand God's voice, go where you know he has already spoken. It will put you in tune with what he sounds like. Read the New Testament. It's amazing. Great stuff happens. God speaks. It will make hearing his voice outside of Scripture so much easier. Secondly, believe that he speaks directly. Unfortunately, I know, for those of you brought up in more conservative circles, you'll have grown up with the idea that God's direct supernatural speaking to people stopped with the apostolic age and the formulation of the New Testament. This is an important issue to address. Let me address it now. This teaching has absolutely no grounding whatsoever 
in either scripture or church history. Good? Good. Ditch it. In practice, obviously, this does take some time to rewrite things that we may have heard. Um, we have to rewrite uh, things that seemed like they were true at the time. But my encouragement is the more you do it, the more you do it. It's like riding a bike. You've just got to get on, fall off, keep going, keep going. God is speaking right now. He loves to speak. Everyone can hear his voice. So be okay with making mistakes. As Paul says, we only prophesy in part, which means we can let ourselves off the hook. We are not supposed to always get it all right all the time. We will sometimes, I mean, we will somewhat always be incomplete in our prophecy. It's okay. Imagine the first time you rode a bike, falling off it, and then your dad or your mum or whoever it was who was teaching you decided, right, that's it, done, throws the bike away, never to help you ride a bike again. Would you learn how to ride a bike? No. It's okay to learn for a bit. And finally, be open to being used. This goes for all of us. Uh, we used to be a bit more aggressive when it came to um, doing prophecy in services. When we were smaller, it was, it was okay because there was only about 10 of us. And so there would be about 10 of us in a school hall. And we'd go, right, we're going to um, open ourselves to hearing what God wants to say. And anyone who would like to prophesy, prophesy. And it was very awkward because there were only 10 of us. And six of us were, you know, leading the thing. So there's four people. Uh, but I remember two people, um, one of whom uh, moved actually to the East Coast and one of whom is still here. Both of them, uh, one of them wasn't even a Christian. Neither of them have ever prophesied before. But because they were sitting in this, we, they sort of felt like they had to prophesy, which was quite funny. And both of them just prophesied themselves into the church on separate occasions. They both said, God is saying to us that we really need to join this church. And I was like, all of us are part of it apart from you. And then they kept on coming. It was wonderful. Now, in general, prophecy is for everyone. It's not just for you. So you'll know if it's prophecy, if it's actually for the encouragement of everyone else. But in general, it doesn't really matter. Just give it, take yourself off the hook. We're all learning. It's fine. Prophesy yourself into the church if you need to. Let's not hide our gifts or our usefulness in the kingdom under a bushel. And as I said at the beginning, I know for a lot of people, application is, is the issue. Kind of maybe have identified their gifts. They just want to know where and how they can have the opportunity to use them. I, I hear that, and I think it's very important. We've done five very nice talks uh, on the theory, on the theology. What we need now is opportunities for everyone to serve. If not, those were just five nice talks and nothing really changes. So what we're going to do is either on a Sunday or in a midweek evening in the coming time, we're going to have a sort of workshop, um, hearing again what we believe uh, the gifts are, helping people identify them, and then saying, here are the opportunities to grow in your gifting. This is what you can do. Okay? So just watch this space for that. Good? Good. Right. We've talked a lot about prophecy. We haven't done any prophesying. We're going to do some prophesying. That would be much more fun. So let's stand, and we're going to sing a song of worship. If you have to go, you have to go. I'm sorry I've gone on. But what I suggest we do 
is we sing this song of worship. And in singing this song of worship, could you just worship Jesus for a bit? Don't worry about anything else. You're not trying to hear anything. You're not straining yourself to hear from God. You're just worshiping God. Okay, that's the only thing you're doing. Because when we worship God, we put him in his rightful place and he meets with us. It's the wonder of worship. It's not just one way. He comes into um, our, our space and he shares himself with us. So to start with, we're just worshiping God. And after we've done that, we can just be still for a bit and see what he might want to say.